Section 28 of the Letters of Madame de Sévigné to her daughter and friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter 86. The Rocks, Wednesday, June the 12th, 1680. So I've written a sermon without thinking of it. I am as much surprised at this as the Count de Soissons when he was told he had made prose. Footnote, it is singular that Moliere should have found in a nobleman the most laughable instances of ignorance with which he endows his bourgeois gentilhomme. Back to main text. It is true, I feel myself disposed to do all honour to the grace of Christ. I do not cry out, as the Queen Mother did in the excess of her zeal against those vile Jansenists, are uh, fie-fie upon grace. I say the contrary, and can bring good vouchers for it. Since you have imparted to me your visions with regard to the fortunes of your brothers-in-law, I will tell you sincerely that I was afraid the heir of a house where saving grace was sometimes talked of might have injured the Abbe de Grignon. Thank heaven I have done no more harm than yourself, and if I am silent for the future, as I ought, and certainly shall be, it will not be from the fear of injuring anyone. Your young bishops are seldom suspected of this heresy. I've just been writing to the Chevalier. He has absolutely forgotten me, and as he is not infected with the Grignon indolence, it may be a serious business. Your great building, my dear, is begun today. Dubuc will do all he can to hasten the workmen. There was no possibility of commencing sooner, and there's time enough to complete everything. I send you a letter of Madame de Lavardin's, by which you will see what are her sentiments. I'm almost tempted to send you likewise a very long letter I have received from Madame de Moussy, in which she takes pleasure in acquainting me with everything she has done relatively to this marriage. She has made choice of me in preference to any other person to communicate the whole of her conduct to. She is in the right. The second volume is worthy the admiration of anyone who has read the first. She seems happy in taking every opportunity of loading Monsieur de Lavardin with favours by means of the influence she has over his mother. She has made her give a thousand pounds worth of pearls. She's made her give all the fire irons, stoves, candlesticks, tables and silver waiters that were worth having. Handsome tapestry, fine old furniture, with linen and dressing gowns which Madame de Moussy selected herself. Her heart takes this method of avenging itself, but for her it would have been a mere village wedding. She has made her give considerable estates to her son, and to crown all, she will manage so that the new married couple will not live in the same house with the mother, whose overbearing temper and rigid observance of ours will by no means suit the young couple. Madame de Moussy delights in displaying to me the liberality of her soul, and I am amazed to see the extraordinary manner in which she contributes to Monsieur Lavardin's happiness. The desire of being singular, 
and of distinguishing ourselves by stepping a little out of the common road seems to me to be the source of many virtues. She writes me word that she should be very happy if I were at Paris because I should understand her, no one else being able to comprehend what she is doing. She adds, besides, that I should die with laughing to see the grimaces Madame de Lavedam makes every time the devil of avarice is cast out of her by the power of her exorcisms. The poor lady seems perfectly exhausted, like the nuns of Loudun. Footnote, alluding to the Histoire des Diables de Loudun, History of the Devils of Loudun. It is well known that the fierce hatred of Cardinal de Richelieu, the manoeuvres of the Capuchin Joseph, and the cruelty of the judge, Lobardement, caused the unfortunate curé Urbain Grandier to perish in the flames, as convicted of the crime of magic, quote, Upon the deposition of Ashtaroth, devil of the order of seraphims and chief of the possessing devils, Anoisas, Cham, Machaos, Zebulum, Nephraim, Uriel and Akas of the order of the principalities. End quote. These are the terms of the sentence, back to main text. It must certainly be a very comic scene. I've also received some very entertaining letters from the Marchioness Duxel. The fair widows do wonders. Madame de Coulange assures me that she is to set out on the 20th for Lyon. She writes me a thousand trifles. This city will become the source of all the private intelligence of the court. But do you suppose she will communicate any of this precious commodity to the inhabitants? I had a visit the other day from an Augustan friar, a poor creature, a very poor creature indeed. He assumed the airs of a preacher, but I answered his pompous ignorance only with a smile of contempt. He still went on, till at last I was strongly tempted to throw a book at his head. I fancy Madame de Coulanges will be ready to reply in the same way to the ladies of Lyon. Young Coulanges will be with you. He has given up Monsieur de Chaune and Brittany for Lyon and the Crignons. I am quite of his opinion, my dearest child, and my greatest joy would be to make one of your party, and how I should like to sup in your delightful grotto, how pleased I should be with Monsieur de Grignon's music, and those beautiful passages in the opera which have often made my eyes glisten. Oh, it would be a charming party. Your house is a little town. Really, to reflect upon our situations and dispositions, it might be supposed some magic change had been wrought upon us, and yet, to the honour of both, you fill your exalted station admirably, and shine as in your proper sphere, while I and my humble fortune seem fitted for the woods and to the solitude I inhabit. The truth is, I am assured from whence all this comes, it is necessary to raise our eyes to heaven after having long kept them fixed upon the earth. The other evening one of my people told me, quote, that it was very warm in the mole, that there was not a breath of air stirring, and that the moon shone with the finest effect imaginable, end quote. 
I could not resist the temptation, so I put on bonnets, cloaks, capuchins, and all the needless defences you could wish, and forth I sallied into the mall, where the air was as mild as in my own room. I found there a thousand fantastic illusions of the night, black and white friars, linen scattered here and there, black men in one place, others buried upright against trees, little dwarfs who just showed their heads and concealed the rest of their bodies, priests who did not approach me, etc., etc. After having laughed heartily at all these figures and fully convinced ourselves of the true origin of what are called spirits, apparitions that play their farces in the theatre of our imaginations, we returned to the house without sitting down or feeling the least due. I beg your pardon, my dear child, but I thought myself obliged, after the example of the ancients, as the foolish fellow we met in the gardens at Milchy used to say, to show this mark of respect to the moon. I assure you, I have sustained no injury from it. There has fallen to me out of the clouds one of the prettiest Calumbore chaplets in the world. Footnote Calumbore, Calumluk, or Calumbach are knots of the aloe tree round which the resin collects and hardens by incorporation. This Calumbuk, held to the fire, emits a fine perfume. The aloe tree grows in the woods of Cochin, China, back to main text. One of the prettiest calumbur chaplets in the world. This is doubtless because I tell my beads so well. The best ball to the best player, you know. This chaplet has a cross of diamonds hanging to it with a death's head of coral. I have certainly seen that vile face somewhere. Tell me, I beseech you how it found its way to me at such a distance. In the meantime, I shall not tell my beads without considerable musings. I am of the opinion that it will occasion greater distractions. I wait your answer on this subject. Readers note this rosary was a gift from Madame de Grignon, back to main text. Have you heard the story of Madame de Saint-Prange? They concealed it a long time from me, lest it should prevent me from returning to Paris in a carriage. This lady was going to Fontainebleau, for we should let no advantage slip, where she pretended she should be highly entertained. She had a very pretty place at court, was young, and had a taste for all the pleasures suitable to her years. She adopted the fashionable mode of setting out at six o'clock in the evening and driving post, so as to get in about midnight but listen to the consequences. Her carriage was overturned by the way. A piece of broken glass pierced through her stays into her body, and she died of the wound. They write me word from Paris that she lost her reason between the pain the surgeons gave her and the mortification of dying in the bloom of youth. Is not this a curious adventure? If you know it already... It will be ridiculous to tell you it a second time, but it has made a strange impression on my brain. It seems Madame de Nevers has made one on the greatest head in the world, and has turned another smaller one quite topsy-turvy. 
but I do not find that this has been attended with any serious consequences. Footnote, Madame de Nevers, the daughter of Madame de Tionge, was a perfect beauty. The greatest head is the king, but it was not true that he had designs upon her, as it was said she had upon him. The other smaller head was the duke, the son of the great Conde, who was really very much in love with her back to main text. The king took the sacrament on Whitsunday. Madame de Fontange's influence still continues brilliant and solid. But what are we to think of this friendship? I have received a letter from Monsieur Pompon in the midst of his retirement, of which I am more proud than if it had been from amid all the splendour of Saint-Germain. It is there he has again become as perfect as at Rennes. Reader's note, Rennes in Normandy, where Monsieur Pompon had spent some time after his dismissal back to main text. Ah, how excellent a use does he make of his disgrace, and what charming company he is in. Letter 87 the Rock, Saturday, June the 15th, 1680. I shall make no answer to what you say of my letters. I am extremely happy that they please you. Had you not told me so, I should have thought them unbearable. I never can muster up courage enough to read one of them through, and I often say to myself, Good heavens, with what nonsense do I pester my poor child? Sometimes I even repent of having written so much, lest I should lay you under a sort of obligation to answer me in the same way. But let me entreat you, my child, to indulge me in the pleasure of chatting to you without putting yourself to the trouble of answering. Your last letter exceeded all the bounds of prudence and the care you ought to take of your health. You are too good in wishing me more society, but in fact I do not want it. I am accustomed to solitude. I have my workmen to amuse me, and the good abbe has his likewise. His taste for buildings and alterations gets the better of his prudence. It does not cost him much indeed, but it would cost him still less to let it alone. All my delight is in my wood. It is impossible to describe how beautiful it is. I often walk there with my cane and louison which is all I desire. In my closet I find such agreeable company that I often say to myself, this is worthy my daughter. She could not here lay her hand amiss upon a book. There's hardly room left for choice. I have taken up Les Conversations Chrétiennes, Christian Dialogues. They're written by an honest Cartesian who seems to have all your Recherche de la Verité, Inquiry After Truth, by heart, which treats of that philosophy and of the supreme power of God over his creatures, who, as St. Paul says, quote, live, move, and have their being, end quote, in him alone, and by him know all things. I will let you know if this book is within my comprehension, and if not, I shall quit it with all humility, renouncing the foolish vanity of appearing wise when I am not so. I assure you, I think like our brothers, readers note, two of the brothers of Monsieur de Grignon, who were bishops, back to main text, 
and were I to express myself in print, I should say so. I know the difference between the language of policy and that of the heart. God is omnipotent and does what he pleases, that I understand. He wants our hearts, and we will not give them to him. There lies the mystery. But do not discover that of our sisters of Saint-Marie. They write me word that they are charmed with the book I lent them. Footnote, see letter, May the 25th, back to main text. You remind me of the foolish answer I made to excuse myself from going to Madame de Brette, dash. Footnote, apparently Madame de Bretonvilliers, whom the memoirs of the times represent as the over-officious friend of the Archbishop of Paris, de Alley. He was not so timid a priest as he was a rigid Molinist. Back to main text. You remind me of the foolish answer I made to excuse myself from going to Madame de Brett, dash, that I had but one son. This made your bishops start. I thought that it had been merely my heretical air. I mentioned it to you the other day. I think, however, there appeared something strange in the expression. Reader's note. The intimate friendship of this woman with the Archbishop of Paris was almost a scandal. Madame de Sévigné was saying that, as she had only one son, whose career she needed to think about, she didn't need to win the favour of the Archbishop of Paris, of whom she had a low opinion. Monsieur de Grignon's two prelate brothers were concerned that the independence of this remark might harm their careers in the church. Back to main text. Heaven be praised, my dear Countess, we have done no harm. Your brothers could not be better provided for than at present, even had we been Molinists. Probable opinions and the direction of purposes would not have been more advantageous to them in the Hôtel de Canavale than the libertinism of our conversations. I am delighted at it, and have often thought how unjustly we might have suffered on this occasion. I can make nothing of the affair of Monsieur de la Trousse or Madame d'Epinois, or of the servant who robbed them. I will endeavour to get information on this subject and will send you the letters. You find that poor Madame de Lavedin is quite unhappy. Who would have supposed that she would have been otherwise than rejoiced at her son's being married? But I speak like a fool. It should be our invariable maxim that human nature can never be happy. Young Giverny seems to be as much so as anyone. You see how he has extricated himself from his misery? Reader's note by getting married, back to main text. Your poor brother indeed seems fated never to be happy in this world. As to the other world, if we may judge by appearances, I see no probability of his being on the right road. The Bishop of Chalon is certainly in heaven, for he was a devout prelate and a virtuous man. You see, all our friends are lost to us, one after another. I wrote the other day to Madame de Vin that I would leave her to guess what sort of virtue I practised most here, and informed her it was liberality. 
It is certain that I've given away very considerable sums since my arrival. 800 francs one morning, 1,000 another, 500 another, one day, 300 crowns. You may think I am jesting, but it is too true. I have farmers and millers who owe me these sums and have not a farthing to pay me with. What is to be done in this case? Why, I make a virtue of necessity and forgive them the debts. You will readily believe that I make no great merit of this since it is forced liberality. But my head was full of it when I wrote to Madame de Vin, and so down it went on the paper. I endeavour to make the fines pay for it. I have not yet touched one of the six thousand francs from Nantes. Money matters are not soon settled. The other day I had a visit from a pretty little wife of a farmer of Bodegar, with sparkling eyes, fine person, and smartly dressed in a Holland gown with ruffled cuffs and a long train. Good heavens, thought I, when I saw her. I am ruined, for you must know her husband owes me eight thousand francs. Monsieur de Grignon would certainly have fallen in love with this woman. She's the very image of one he admired at Paris. This morning a countryman came in with bags on all sides, some under his arms, some in his pockets and some in his breeches, which he began to untie. For in this country they dress in a strange way. The fashion of buttoning the lower part of the jacket is not yet introduced here. They are very saving of the stuff of which their breeches are composed, and from the gentry of Vitre down to my clodpole, everything is in the highest state of negligence. The good abbe, who you know loves the main chance, seeing the fellow so loaded, thought we were rich forever. Upon my word, friend, you are bravely loaded. How much money do you bring us? Please, your reverence, answered the man, I think there is a matter of thirty francs. My dear child, I believe all the double in France were collected to fill these bags. Footnote double, small pieces of money, of which about five are equal to an English penny, back to main text. In this manner do they abuse our patience and forbearance. You give me great pleasure by what you say of Montgobert. I thought indeed what I wrote to you upon her account was superfluous, and that your excellent understanding would reconcile everything. In this manner, my child, you ought always to act, in spite of momentary vexations. Montgobert has an excellent heart, though her temper is rather too hasty and impetuous. I always honour the goodness of her heart. We are frequently obliged to bear with the little dependencies and circumstances of friendship, though they may sometimes be disagreeable. I shall some day send her a bad cause to defend a Rochecourbier. Since she has a talent for these things, it ought to be exercised. You will have Monsieur de Coulanges with you, who will be a capital performer. He will inform you of his views and expectations. I know nothing of them myself. He dreads solitude so much that he will not even write to anyone who lives in it. 
Grignon, then, is a place perfectly qualified to charm him, as he himself is to charm others. I never met with such delightful society. It is the object of all my wishes. I think of you all incessantly. I read your letters over and over again, saying, as at Livry, let us see what my daughter said to me a week or ten days ago. For in short, it is she who converses with me. And I thus enjoy, quote, the ingenious art of painting language and of talking to the eyes, end quote. You know, it is not the retired groves of the rocks that make me think of you. I thought of you as much in the midst of the bustle of Paris. You are fixed in the centre of my heart. Everything else is transient. It passes and is forgotten. I have forgotten even my Agnes, and yet she is very amiable. Her wit has something of the simplicity of the country in it. But that of Madame de Tarente is still in the high courtly taste. The roads from hence to Vitre are grown so intolerably bad that the King and Monsieur de Chaune have ordered them to be repaired. All the peasants of that barony will be assembled there on Monday next. Adieu, my dearest. When I tell you that my affection is of no use to you, you do not understand in what way I mean and to what my heart and imagination tend. Pray tell me if you intend to place our little girl at X with her aunt. Footnote, Adema de Monte, sister of Monsieur de Grignon and one of the nuns of Aubenard, a town and convent of the Lower Vivard. See the letter of the 9th of June, back to main text. If you intend to place our little girl at X with her aunt, and to send Paulina away. The dear child is a perfect prodigy. Her understanding and wit are a sufficient portion for her. Will you then place her on a level with a common person? I should always take her with me wherever I went, and should never think of sending her to X with her sister. Footnote Marie Blanche, the eldest sister of Paulina, was in the nunnery of Saint-Marie of X, where a short time afterward she took the veil back to main text. In short, I should treat her as she merits, extraordinarily. End of section 28